welcome to the What Flick Podcast. It is a really busy week. We've got awards contenders. We've got blockbusters. We've got Ben and Alonzo both here. It's very exciting. And actually, Ben's got to go in a little bit, so we're going to start things kind of upside down today. We're going to start with some movie news, some news in general, and one of our smaller releases, and then get to the biggies like Aquaman and Bumblebee afterward. But first, let's talk really fast about the very sad passing this week of Penny Marshall. Actress and director Penny Marshall died this week at 75. Yeah, first woman to uh, make a $100 million movie uh, with uh, Big, and then the first woman to make two $100 million <laughs> movies. Back when $100 million was actual money. <laughs> back when that was, back when that represented success for a picture. Yeah. When movies cost less than that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, uh, so with a, a, a league of her own. And, you know, and, and to have so successfully transitioned, because remember, this was a, wasn't just a, an actress. This was a, a sitcom actor in the seventies. In the seventies, <laughs> I mean, it was uh, not the kind of person who emerges from that to become a major motion picture director. But her husband did the exact same thing. Uh, husband, her, her, her uh, ex-husband, uh, uh, Rob Ryder, who of course they were sitcom stars uh, together. He on uh, um, I was on the family. One, I was say one day at a time it was great. He on all in the family, <laughs> and she on Laverne and Shirley. Alonzo. Yeah, uh, I mean, I. I, I don't love all of her movies, but I, I do appreciate her. Uh, the arc of her career, I think, is really fascinating, and uh, I think she was a, a very talented comic performer. And I, I, I have a soft spot for Jumpin' Jack Flash, her her feature debut. Oh, I've forgotten about that one. It, it's a silly movie, but I, I thought it was charming, and it was you know. They were still trying to figure out what to do with Whoopi Goldberg, you know, as a Hollywood entity. You know, she had had her one-woman show on Broadway that Mike Nichols directed, and then Spielberg put her in the color purple. And then it was like, okay, now what? Mm-hmm. And um, so while the movie does some strange sort of like desexualization of her, uh, and on the one hand, on the other hand, I think it really allows her to be verbally funny and physically funny, and, and, and it, it has a lot going on there in a really fun supporting cast with people like uh, uh, Carol Kane and, and Jonathan Price. Um, so that's, that's worth taking a look at. Big, of course, is is brilliant, and and you know I think A League of Their Own has aged really well, and that's a movie that I've been reading on Twitter this week how much that meant to uh, younger women seeing that movie and sort of you know seeing a film in which you know uh, women were transgressive, you know, and they were doing a thing that women weren't supposed to do, and so whether you were a woman in sports or in the arts or in other fields, I think that the, you know you're able to get a lot out of that. But you can look back at, at you know a lot of the characters that Penny Marshall played on television, and even though they were you know seventy sitcom characters. They did shake up the norms a lot of what you thought of a, a woman's role and what she should be doing. I mean, she lived with her best friend and she worked at a, at a brewery and, you know, she wore her little L's on her sweaters and she drank milk and Pepsi well, and, 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 and did things and, her way. And they were, and they were blue collar, which we didn't get a lot of from women on television. Like if, you know, blue collar, you could, you could be Ralph Cramden, but usually professional women on TV were nurses or, you know, they were, you know, Mary Richards at WJM TV or whatever. So for them to have have like a factory line job mm-hmm. and and you know live a very working class lifestyle that revolved around you know their neighborhood and that kind of thing like it it that felt like a new area for TV to explore on what was mostly a frothy sitcom yeah and and big i have such fond memories of big i saw it my senior year in high school and i didn't realize it then but i do now when being a film critic you know she finds that happy, sad, like sweet, melancholy uplift of 
Billy Wilder in it, you know, mm-hmm. of, of the best of Cameron Crowe in it, you know, in, in those happy, sad moments, like just that sweet spot that's so hard to achieve. Um, I Cameron think- Crowe would be very happy about that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> said Billy Wilder and then Cameron Crowe. I'm not knocking it. He loved, Early he loved, Cameron he loved, Crowe. He loved, but he loved Billy Wilder. Oh, he, oh, he did that yeah. whole book with yeah, him. Right, yeah. yeah. So um, we just saw Aquaman, Nick to see Aquaman a couple nights ago, and there was a trailer weirdly beforehand <laughs> for Shazam. And Shazam is big, mm. you know? It's, it's, it's a kid finding that he's an adult all of a sudden. He's got his goofy best friend, and they're having a great time together, realizing, oh, man, you're, you're a grown-up now. What can you do? And the excitement of that. So I think that, that owes big, a, a big a debt of gratitude for sure. The Shazam cartoon <laughs> when we were kids, Christy, we're a little older than you, so you may not have experienced this, was the Shazam Isis hour hour right and and which we're not going to have any time soon yeah. <laughs> that that we can't have in the Shazam you got to be renamed yeah <laughs> um uh so i wanted to uh I, you know i'm a huge baseball fan and, and pretty critical of most baseball movies uh league of their own's great i just saw it again recently before she died um uh, the MLB channel was running it because I wanted to watch it with a commercial every six and a half minutes. That's really the way to, to most enjoy the film. And teasing I, their hot stove coverage. I mean, I love Tom Hanks, and I, you know, obviously everybody loves Tom Hanks to some degree, and I forgot he was in it. Like, my memory of it, that's the sign of that it achieved what it was supposed to achieve, right? He's great. He's terrific and a wonderful, cantankerous, boozy manager of the club, but I still think of that as a, a Gina Davis, Lori Petty movie, you know? And uh, so, and it really Madonna, Madonna, Rosie <laughs> O'Donnell. They're great. It's good. It really works. Um, I wanted to read this because I read it when uh, in her obit from the New York Times. And I have my own way of functioning. Penny Marshall said, "My personality is I whine. It's how I feel inside. I guess it's how I use being female too. I touch a lot to get my way and say, please do it over here. So it can be an advantage. The anti-director." In the next paragraph, that attitude was also an essential aspect of her humor. When Vanity Fair asked her to identify her greatest regret, she said that when I was a size zero, there was no size zero. <laughs> She's funny. That's funny. That's, uh, and, and that comes across in, in that her attitude and her sort of that look on life, I think, comes across very clearly in her best pictures. Yeah, and a lot of the response to her death was was from a nostalgic place, certainly, because we all grew up in the 70s, and people like this, when they pass away, it's like part of us has gone too, but there's clearly so much more to her career and to her contributions to the culture. So, Penny Marshall, rest in peace, age 75. Um, let us move on to some reviews. Let's start with Cold War, which is gorgeous and exquisitely shot in this beautiful black and white academy ratio you feel like you are watching an old-fashioned movie you feel like you're watching a movie you would see on tcm ben in a lot of ways yes 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 in the way it's made so it's this gorgeous polish film from pavel pavlikowski who's Ida, from a few years back, won the foreign language Oscar. Um, the star of Cold War, Joanna Kulig, was also in Ida, and here she is the star of it. And it's this, like, achingly swoony, impossible romance over the course of about 15 years in various European countries. It, it begins in Poland after World War II and eventually ends up in Paris. And it is about um, this teenager played by Coolidge. Her name is Zula and she auditions for this musical troupe. This uh, couple of music producers, one of whom Tomas Kot, Victor is his character's name. Um, They're looking for young talent and they're looking to try to drum up a sense of national pride by going back to the music and the dance steps of, you know, traditional Polish 
folklore and they're trying to revive a sense of, of self and of, of I don't know. Maybe it's shamelessly milking, you know, what was and what can no longer be, but that's what they're going for with this this troupe they're assembling. And when they hold auditions, um, Zula tries out, and there's something kind of wise beyond her years. There's something beyond just her talent, which is, you know, leaps and bounds beyond what everybody else has. There's just this edge to her, and there's this this worldly femininity to her, despite the fact that she's a teenager, which is kind of exciting and kind of dangerous. And so she and Victor launch into this romance which cannot be over the course of all these years and they kind of fall in and out of love and they plan to meet up with each other and then don't and then her musical career takes off as his is falling apart it's kind of polish a star is born (laughs) in some ways um and she is just magnetic. I'm doing a Q&A with her tonight after a showing of this film here at the Lemley Royal and I cannot wait to talk to her. She's super pregnant. She's like about to burst and um, I just can't wait to pick her brain about making this person so vibrantly believable over this large span of time where it's like your formative years. I mean, she goes from being a teenager to being a a, a world-weary woman and it's never less than totally captivating and believable. And, you, and the thing, that's an excellent summation of the movie, but the, in the Cold War politics, which plays such a, a critical role in the dance troupe and, and in why they can't see each other and in the, why he wants to get out and it's tougher, you know, all the reasons that, that, that sort of make the movie. So we have Cole against this more than a backdrop because it's in sometimes a front drop of the mm-hmm. of the political nature of the of of behind the iron curtain during the during the picture and then this love story and then this story that includes you know folk dance and jazz and as you say and it it exists over decades right and somehow i mean if there ever is a description of a movie that is 2 hours and 41 minutes long mm-hmm. that is it and it's 88 minutes. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. A, it's, it's amazing that, I mean, that, that how he did this and you don't feel like normally in a movie this good when it's 88 minutes, I think, oh, you know, I could have used that 12 other, you know, you, I could have handled a couple other scenes in this, but man, it is, uh, this is, uh, this is pretty perfect. It's dense. They, they pack a lot into those 88 minutes. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, this is a movie with real sweep to it and it, cause it is the sort of star crossed lovers against the backdrop of history as it unfolds. And you know, it, it, they're so interesting on their own and then they have to contend with, you know, the Soviet bloc and the Iron Curtain and all of these issues. And so um, it is a very kind of old-fashioned movie. It reminded me of, like, his little Casablanca in there, Reds even, you know, just this notion of, like, this couple that they're both so volatile and complicated that they can't be together, but they can't not be together. And so they keep running towards and then being repelled by each other. But again, on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain, and so that complicates matters. And yeah, this is this does have a really an amazing sweep, particularly given its its relatively abbreviated running time. And the use of music is so powerful beyond just the you know, the classic Polish folk music in the beginning. There is one song that's a thread throughout the entire mm. film that that changes each time it's played, and it becomes her signature song. And it it. She performs several different times with several different arrangements, and it becomes like richer and more achingly romantic with each one. And and by the end, it's just like this torch song. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just you want to just 
drop dead in the, right in place because it's so beautiful. Yeah, the, the, I love the opening sequences where they're just sort of like being these kind of musical anthropologists and trying to, and recording all of these old like peasant folk songs and that kind of thing and moments where it sort of sounds like that. Remember that moment in the late eighties, early nineties where the Bulgarian women's radio choir beca- had like hits here. No, the Le Mystère de Voix Bulgare. <laughs> it was like they, 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 they like none such was putting out albums of the Bulgarian state women's TV choir and they were haunting, you know, and it was just these, these, these harmonies that you'd never heard before. Um, but then how that, that, you know, even though the whole point of putting this show together is already a, one type of political propaganda, how then, they then have to go a further step into making like, let's think about how great Stalin is, but make it sound like a folk song. Right. And yeah, there's also, there's, there's a scene <laughs> in make which it sound like a folk song, right? <laughs> there's a scene in which they play Rock Around the Clock. Yeah, yeah. Which oh, will, my God. Which will make you feel as if you have never heard Rock Around the Clock before. Or any rock and roll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so alive. Yeah. I have never seen a movie that makes a historical moment like that feel contextual. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, yeah, it, that, it, the energy of, like, if you've never heard rock music before, and holy crap, what is this, and why am I having to dance right now? <laughs> yeah, this, that, that, is, that is one of the great scenes of any movie this year. It is, and it's also, what, what's so fascinating about it is it's simultaneously a high point and a low point for her. Yes. Because she's joyous, and she's effervescent, but she's also an absolute mess in that moment. And, like, the music is all that's, like, keeping her sane and alive. Uh, now's the time when I say something obvious, uh, which <laughs> I like to do. I think there's always this moment in all of the reviews that I participate in. But, um, you know, it is a, uh, particularly for those of us who uh, grew up uh, sort of against the backdrop of the Cold War and our effective efforts, propaganda wise, to sort of dehumanize the Soviets, right? Which is, I think, one reason why Alonso and I were the perfect age and why we each loved the Americans so much, right? Because it it shook to our core uh, the the what we thought of the Soviets, right? And every, and you know, and we liked, we identified with them. We're rooting for them, not just the ones here, but in the show we're rooting. We even like the, the, the bureaucrats, right? Uh, and this movie does that too. It is a reminder. And again, the rock around the clock scene is a perfect, that like, that these people, right? And these are not specifically Soviets, but we are behind the iron curtain, right? And it is just a reminder of the, obvious and staggering humanity that existed in these people who we think of as just robotic or we were taught to think as robotic automatons who waited in line to get bread and never spoke up but of course and this is the obvious part guess what they they also fell in love they also had crazy sex they also loved music they all the things that we have um and it's again a reminder as we go forward and we continue to demonize huge swaths of society who right now we it is to our advantage geopolitically to demonize uh that we not fall into the same trap of uh, of forgetting the 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 bonds and humanity and this is not something naive but it that's what shocked me i think that's what that's what attracted to the americans to me to the powerful extent where it's one of the best shows i've ever seen and i had the same sort of experience uh watching cold war what is your number uh, I gave it a very good number. I think 8.8. Mm-hmm. Yep. Alonzo? Uh, I said 8.5. Okay, I'm saying 9.6. I Ooh. love this movie. It is not on my top 10 list because there are only 10 movies I can put on there. But I, I cheated <laughs> in my little intro when I mentioned this is one of the ones that fell off as the year went on. But I love, love, love this movie. If you can see it in a theater, please see it in a the theater. I actually got to see it at the Academy. 
Ooh. In Academy, in Academy ratio. ratio. There you go. I know Ben has to take off, so uh, thank you, Ben. Merry Christmas. <laughs> what did you pop that was heartfelt. Okay, so let's move on to the biggies of the week now. And the biggest of all, of course, is Aquaman. Aquaman. Tell us about Aquaman. Okay, so uh, we, we met Jason Momoa's Aquaman in Justice League. Uh, and that movie, I think, gets about one line of reference in this film and is never discussed again. There is? Uh, there's a, early on, uh, the uh, Mira, played by um, Amber, Heard. Amber Heard, makes some reference to, You defeated Steppenwolf. Oh, that breezed by. I didn't even hear that. Okay, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You, so if you didn't see Justice League, don't worry, you're fine. So this movie is part origin story, part save the world, part go to the place and find the thing, all kind of laid on top <laughs> of each other. So origin story-wise, we find out that Aquaman is the son of a, of a human, a uh, lighthouse keeper, played by Tamara Morrison, and uh, the Queen of Atlantis, played by Nicole Kidman. And even though uh, the Atlanteans think of him as a as a half breed bastard son, uh, it is only he. He is the chosen one who can meld the two peoples, the human beings and the uh, the undersea dwellers. And he better do it quickly because his half brother, played by Patrick Wilson, is looking to declare war on the surface as the Ocean Master. We also get to meet uh, another famous uh, Aquaman um, rogue, uh, Black Manta, pops up seeking revenge and working with Wilson's character to um, to cause havoc and mayhem. And, uh, you know, so, so yeah, so there's, there's saving the world. There's going to find the trident that he has to have to claim the throne of Atlantis and the, uh, so it's, it is a, it is a, it is a colorful and mostly silly movie that does not take itself overly seriously, which I appreciated. Um, but a lot of the early, uh, responses I was hearing from people was like, oh, this is a movie that knows how dumb it is and it's super entertaining. And I got the dumb, but I wasn't. As entertained as I thought I might be. I'm not sure that everyone involved knows how dumb it is. <laughs> I feel like Nicole Kidman is playing it totally straight. Like she's in some sort of Greek tragedy. Well, I think you have to. <laughs> I mean, I think you just have to. If you're, you're going to sign on to sort of thing, you have to commit to it. Like, yeah, she is in it. Willem Dafoe. Like, there's some serious actors going on here. And there's Jason Momoa. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't get the allure of him. Yes, he's big and hulky. He's a terrible actor and forgive me if I want my Aquaman to also be able to act and not just be big and hulky. He slurs all of his lines. He's, he's he's a monotony to his delivery. Like there's nothing to him beyond just like those eyes and those muscles. Yeah. It's kind of raised eyebrow bro-y for the most part. And you know, he does a lot, he does the posing parts. Well, you know, the camera will sort of track in as he like looks over his shoulder, you know, (laughs) or he'll land on, you know, both hands and one foot and look up. You know, but, but but then he has like some one liner to deliver, and it always falls flat. Yeah. Like his timing, his comic timing sucks. Yeah, but then he has to talk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it kind of it kind of all goes south from there. So yeah, I mean, I I'm. I liked looking at it. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, there's uh, somebody on Twitter said the, the fun thing about Aquaman is that nothing you can suggest is any more absurd than anything that they actually did put in there. Right. Well, yeah. The question is like. 
as far as the rules go. So there are no rules along those lines as far as when they can breathe and how they can breathe and something some things float, some things have weight. That bugged me too because <laughs> yeah, like like for example, like every because they're underwater, everybody's hair is sort of floating around them. So Patrick Wilson has this sort of has this chignon the whole time, which Dave turned to me and said it's like the vertigo haircut. It is. Like, he also like if if Draco Malfoy, who are like an underwater yes, villain. That totally. would be Patrick Wilson here, yeah. But yeah, but, but like there's a whole there's a part where they get where where Amber Heard and and Jason Momoa are in Sicily trying to find this trident, and then they get chased by goons from Patrick Wilson's army, and she like punches them in the face, and when their face mask explodes and they're not breathing water anymore, like they're either gasping or one guy hilariously has to put his head in the toilet, you know, ho ho. <laughs> but then other people hop out of the ocean and are breathing. Then just fine, and nobody ever explains who can breathe outside of the ocean, who can't. I also want to understand the wardrobe choices because is Amber Heard's sparkly sequined green jumpsuit just like always on her? Like, is that her skin? And then she puts on like a linen button down and pants to walk through the Sahara because then all of a sudden she's back in the sparkly outfit again. And I'm like, where did she pack that? She didn't have anywhere to put it. Also, so is that the same jumpsuit that Kate Blanchett wears at the end of Ocean's 8? Ooh. Ooh. Maybe. Same I designer. Was, I was fixated on the jellyfish dress. That was very pretty. That was yes. a hell of a dress. Where do you hang that? I don't know. Or where do you get dry cleaned? Where do you feed that dress? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, like we shouldn't be thinking about these little details. We should be transported by the enormity of it all. Yeah. Now, I knew nothing about Aquaman going in, but I recall from Super Friends that he was kind of like blandly, blondly handsome. Yeah, he's a, he's a character who was not all that super interesting as far as his backstory and stuff. Like, yeah, he was half human half Atlantean. He was always a sort of kind of blandly, bland, white, blonde guy. They did give him a little more of an edge in the last couple of decades where he's got like facial hair. And at one point he had like one of his hands got chopped off by one of his enemies and it became this sort of like... It was it was a hook, but it was like Atlantean technology. I think he could change it to different things, you know, with his mind. Um, Is it like a lobster claw at some point? I too? mean, it could be, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know if he wanted to go that route. Um, so you know, they, they 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 you know, I think yeah, like it was an eye patch. Like they really were going like, oh, Aquaman, you know, um, but. Yeah, he's. But the thing is that that could be a benefit. You are dealing with kind of a blank slate. Most of us think of him as that guy from Super Friends, you know. So you could you could do anything. And so having you know this sort of tattooed Jason Momoa is a way to go. It's an exciting choice, you know. As far as it's different. Yeah, but it just yeah. Ultimately, yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad that the DC movies are getting away from the Zack Snyder brand of just like apocalyptic gloom. This is fun. I will uh, it, get it, sometimes. It, it is. It is. It is sometimes fun, and it, it it has a breeziness to it. But I just there wasn't enough for me to kind of sink my claws into to care. Like I'm fine with funny and breezy. Like you can be Deadpool. You know, I love Spider Man into the Spider Verse. You know, like you can have fun with this stuff, and it's great, and you should. But like you got to throw me enough of a bone as far as the character goes, and the, so that I care. That a that I'm not sure I'm not entirely sure that he's going to survive, and that I care how he gets to the thing. But like this character is so seemingly invulnerable mm-hmm. that you almost never feel like he's in any peril. He's very strong, you know. And uh, yeah, so I just I was like I kept waiting for that moment where I was going to be 
where I was going to care about what was happening, and it really never came. I found it surprisingly messy and unwieldy, given that it comes from director James Wan, right. who did Furious 7. And The Conjuring. And he did The Conjuring, and he did the first Saw. Mm-hmm. And, you know, say what you will about any of those across those various genres, but they're tight and they're focused. Sure. And even for, for Furious 7, like, yeah, it's, it's a big, dumb car movie, but it's, it's lean and it moves and mm-hmm. it's coherent. I was surprised by... Just the general all over the place ishness of it's a this slack, movie. Yeah, yeah it's, it's and it is over as we were saying. You know, we we're talking with Ben about this before. Like Ben doesn't like movies that are long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is two and a half hours long, nearly, and uh, does not need to be. And yeah, mm-hmm. the, there's a, a repetitiveness to some of the fight scenes, and they're a little over long, and just. There's just so much going on. And and it's pretty at times. The colors, the underwater colors and the creatures are quite lovely. Mm-hmm. I took Nick and Nick loves sharks. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of, you know, dug a lot you of this sharks stuff. Sharks that growl like bears and octopi that play drums, yeah. and, you know. But yeah, it just ultimately doesn't add up to much. Yeah, so uh, I can't say I could even recommend it on a so bad it's good level. Like no, it's, not, I, it's not dumb fun y- enough. Yeah, no, it's just sort of like... Mm, uh, you know, I, I maybe it'll be one of those things where I think with some of the Marvel movies, the first, I liked the second go round on certain characters. Like I liked Captain America, the Winter Soldier, more than I liked the first Avenger. You know, so maybe mm-hmm. the next one, yeah. uh, like now that we've gotten the sort of housekeeping out of the way of like here's where he comes from and here's how Atlantis works, maybe they can just get right to the good stuff and it'll be more fun. I don't know. All right, so I'm saying four point eight. Uh, I said five and a half. Okay, so we're saying 5.2. It's at 66% on the tomato meter. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so moving on to a blockbuster we both really liked, and that <laughs> is Bumblebee. Yeah, now Bumblebee is uh, the first Transformers movie not directed by Michael Bay. I think he's got like an executive producer credit, but uh, Travis Knight is stepping in. He is the... Uh, the director of Kubo and the Two Strings. He runs Leica Studios. This is his first live-action film. Uh, oh, by the way, I just, just going back to Aquaman real quick. Yeah. I, 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 even though apparently Julie Andrews apparently wishes oh. the makers of, of Mary Poppins Returns nothing but the best, it is kind of hilarious that it, the, the, those two movies come out the same week, and she's not in Mary Poppins Returns, but she is an Aquaman in mm. her, her voice. So mm, Yes. So if you're looking for our Mary Poppins Returns review, that was on last yes. week. Yes. So do, do go back and check that one out if you missed it. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. Bumblebee. It's okay. Um, uh, they are going a different approach here. For for one thing, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a prequel. Where they're taking us back to the 80s and sort of the arrival of the Autobots on Earth. Uh, but this is also a movie that has human characters that you believe exist and has a real visual coherence for one because Michael Bay is not directing it. Uh, So Haley Steinfeld stars as a teenage girl whose father has died a year previous and she's still feeling, um, she's still mourning him and, and, you know, her her, her mom has moved on and has a new boyfriend her brother seems to be getting on with things but she's still sort of, you know, listening to the Smiths a lot. And... um, she turns 18. She really wants a car. She finds this old junker of a VW Beetle in a junkyard. And it turns out it's Bumblebee who has escaped to Earth uh, during the Autobot Revolution. And uh, his systems were damaged. And he's 
you know, forgotten who he is, but under her loving care sort of begins to remember things. And as the two of them bond and become friends, uh, his appearance signals um, the Decepticons to come after him. And we see the first encounter of the Decepticons and the, uh, the government leading to big giant robot showdown in which Haley Steinfeld gets to play a major role. This is really fun. It's really fun and it moves really well and it is surprisingly emotional. Yeah. I will acknowledge I teared up a time or two and a lot of that has to do with the fact that there's a whole lot of E.T. in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Bibbs was calling this a magical friend movie and it is totally, yeah, it is very much following the E.T. formula. You know, the, 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 the troubled loner kid who, like, has an encounter with an alien and, and you know, they their friendship changes everything. Similarly, um, like Elliot in E.T., she is... Is mourning the, the absence of a father, mm-hmm. right? I mean, E.T. is about Spielberg's parents' divorce, you right. know, so that the absentee dad is a big reason why E.T. Need, or Elliot rather needs that E.T. father-like figure, friend, father, whatever you want to call it. Bumblebee is all of that to her. And even in the, mo- the most literal sense, because the thing that the connected them, one of the most important things connected them was her love of cars. Right, so cars this allows her to be close to that car culture that she loves and associates with her dad. So um, the moment that she first connects with him and when she takes his face, such as it is, mm-hmm. and he, he closes his eyes ever so slightly and leans into, and, and leans into the, the touch of her hands and like... I'm like, oh my god, I'm going to cry in a freaking Transformers movie. It's such a tender moment. They built the first teaser around that moment. And, you know, I generally don't watch trailers except when we had to watch them for for What the Flick. But I remember seeing that and being like... Yeah. (laughs) So I I was very excited. And I think there may be a tendency in some quarters to, like, overpraise this movie because it is so much better than the other Transformers movies. I mean, unless you were a fan of that sort of thing. I, I'm not. <laughs> Richard, Richard Brody of The New Yorker, bless his heart, tweeted, I don't know how I'm going to feel about Bumblebee because my favorite part of the Transformers movies has always been Michael Bay's direction. I was like, mm. oh, Richard, you do you. <laughs> um, well, but, you. But you know what it is, though? Is I, I love the fact that it is from a female perspective. You have mm-hmm. this badass central female figure in Haley Steinfeld. And a female screenwriter, Christina Hodson. There you go. And you, you know, there's no Megan Fox-ization of mm-hmm. Haley Steinfeld. She is a tough and kind of tomboyish young woman, and she is true to herself, and there's no cheesy, skeevy objectification of her, which I, I really appreciate. She's smart and she's resilient and yeah. she's loyal and true. And I like the friendship she has with Jorge Lindeberg Jr. as mm-hmm. the, uh, he's literally the boy next door yeah. and he's got a crush on her. And he also, as you looked up afterward, you, you were like, hmm, who's he? He was also in Love, Simon. Yeah, he was the lo- he was the eventual love interest, and sorry for the spoiler, spoiler. in Love, Simon. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and it's very charming because he, really sweet, yeah. he is so, like, devoted to her and she could kind of take or leave him, you know, which is nice. But also, like, he's the girl. Yes, don't you know. Totally, yeah. I mean, she's like the tough, fearless, brave, badass one, and he's like, oh my god. She's she's the one that has to like climb a high thing in the finale, right? And know? he's along for the ride. He's right. along to be supportive and sweet, and be, and I, I like the reversal of roles of that. Yes, this is a surprisingly coherent mm-hmm. Transformers movie. I mean, again, yeah, as you say, it's still a dumb Transformers movie in some ways. Like the dialogue is still that stupid Optimus Prime dialogue, and you know, I, it's all I did, bad. I did love the fact that like you know they show the government 
totally, you know, seemingly buying into the Decepticons line that, like, they're the good guys and the Bumblebee is dangerous and they're there to capture him. And then later there's a meeting and John Cena's character is like, they're called Decepticons. Why are we believing them? And I was like, thank you, thank Ruby. Because I was thinking that very same thing, and you, you got there first. So, well done. Thank you, John Cena, for being the voice of reason. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah, and there are, like, you know, standard issue government bad guys who are on their tail, and mm-hmm. and she has to run off with Bumblebee and protect him. And But, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's really sweet, and it moves really well. Let's talk about the music, because it's a huge <laughs> role here. They must have spent so much yeah. money. Money on music, not just in the way that Bumblebee communicates, because and, and we do learn why it is that he communicates through music, um, but also just the songs they play that like link one scene to another. Which this is a thing we hate. They're quite frequently like really painfully on the nose. Yeah, definitely. They, 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 there were there were some. I was like, oh come on. But it's a lot of eighty. But they use the Smiths really effectively yes, here, yes. which I appreciate. It's not necessarily eighties songs that we expect. Right, yeah. and and they and, and the thing about you know the, the thing that always drives Dave and me nuts about these movies is that they pretend that the songs that we now love from the eighties were all popular in the eighties, which they were not. Like if you were, you know, if you went to a frat party, you. You did not hear the Smiths in New Order. Mm-hmm. You know, you got beaten up for listening to mm-hmm. those guys. You know, but this, I would, I believe that she would listen to the right. Smiths because she is like a, a sort of, you know, outsider, right. you know, kind of indie girl. Um, you know, and and year wise, they didn't, they didn't, you know, have there were no anachronisms. So I, I admire that. As well, well, there were no songs that came out after the movie takes place. Exactly. But there are quite a few that would have come out a few years prior. Sure. So, I mean, they're not trying to necessarily create yeah. that exact moment well, in time. Right, but again, I mean, the radio plays right. songs from two <laughs> this, years ago. Yeah. It's not impossible. K-Rock. K-Rock would have played all those songs. Um, so, yeah, but like when she's working at Hot Dog on a Stick at the amusement park or whatever it mm-hmm. is, you know, they're playing Things Can Only Get Better by Howard <laughs> Jones. I mean, there is some kind of on the nose. When she's trying to get Bumblebee to work, they play Duran Duran, Save a Prayer. Yeah, I mean, there's Everybody some kind Wants of, to Rule the World yeah. pops up in there. It's like, you know, which for me is always the song from yeah. Real Genius. But anyway, me too. Uh, <laughs> the end of real genius. These are all again. These are all songs I really like a lot. I'm not complaining about. It. Oh, no. we'll see. Oh yeah, when she takes off in the car with Bumblebee, do they not play "Runaway" by Bon Jovi? I mean, there's some kind of maybe, yeah, yeah, uh, the, the, some the, painful the, stuff, but still fun. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think yeah, they get the '80s stuff right for the most part, and uh, and yeah, I, I just you know she's so appealing, and she is. They do work in this sort of crazy like giant robot interstellar war plot into this sort of female coming of age story. Uh, so, you know, I think if you, if, if you like the, the big clunky stuff of Transformers movies, you're going to get it. You get fighter jets and sports cars and all the stuff that they turn into. But like when one, when, you know, my, my complaint about the Michael Bay movies was always like, I just want to see one robot fist connect with one robot jaw <laughs> and not just a mass of pixels flying in my face. The, the, all the, all that stuff is very visually you know, readable and understandable. Here. Yes, more than usual. Also, I like Pamela Adlon as her mom. Yes. She's very cute as her mom. And, and John Ortiz as the uh, scientist. Yes. And yeah, it's, and Haley Steinfeld, she's so cool. She makes interesting choices. I mean, she can work with the Coen brothers and get an Academy Award nomination and then go do a really smart, cool indie like Edge of 17 mm-hmm. and then be the star of a giant blockbuster Transformers movie and she can make it all work. So, yeah. and, and oh, and she was in Begin Again, too. She was in Begin Again. The, uh, the with Kira Knightley. Yeah, the the, the from the once uh, and Sing Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John, but wait. whatever his name is. 
Yes, but who was she? She was the daughter of Mark Ruffalo's character, oh. who like gets to play guitar on the song at the end. John Carney. John Carney, yes. Thank, thank you. you. Yes. Um, anyway, so she, yeah, very good. I, I love her here. She's adorable, but she's tough and uh, feels like a real person. So I was shocked at how good Bumblebee is. And I brought Nick, and he dug it. It's really fun. The she's also the voice of Spider Gwen. That's right. She's Gwen Stacy in Spider Verse. And uh, the downside of this is that Nick has now gone back to watching all those idiotic Transformers cartoons oh. on Netflix. So <laughs> maybe that phase will pass quickly. But I'm saying 7.9. Uh, I said 7. I okay. had a good time. Our number 7.5 is at 94% Ooh. on the tomato meter. It is, I mean, clearly by far the best Transformers movie ever. It's the only good Transformers movie ever. Yeah, if you had asked me six months ago, like, you know, the week that the Mary Poppins <laughs> sequel, the Transformers sequel, and an Aquaman come out, which is going to be the one to recommend? Like, uh, yeah, Bumblebee is the one I'm sending people it's to. It's bizarre, yeah. So uh, go see Bumblebee. And then uh, I'm going to talk about Welcome. Welcome to Morrowind. Oh, please do. I'm dying to hear this because so, I didn't see it. How did you manage to avoid Welcome to Morrowind? Um, because the they didn't have... Well, okay. For one thing, they did not screen it for us before LA Film Critics voted. True, or true. Or send screeners to us. So they were clearly not thinking that this was going to be an awards movie for us. It's very telling. Uh, and then they didn't have a ton of press screenings. I think the ones they did have all happened to be the night that I was taping other podcasts. Although this month I've been taping a lot yeah. of podcasts. Uh, Forgive me if you're sick of my voice at this point in December. <laughs> um, but uh, so, yeah, no, I sent Candace Frederick in New York to see it. And I just, you know, I love Marwin Call, yep. the documentary this is based on. And so I just, as soon as I heard it was happening, I thought, oh, no, yep. no, no, no. Because we've been down this road before with Robert Zemeckis with The Walk. It's like, <laughs> look, we have Man on Wire. Man on Wire is fine. The one thing that Robert Zemeckis brought to that movie was showing, was, was, digitally creating the POV of the person walking a tightrope on the between the two towers of the World Trade Center. And I think what made that movie work is the thing that kept audiences from wanting to see it. It's like, I have perfectly created this cinematic moment that nobody actually wants to do because it's like, it's terrifying. That's how good it was. Yeah. And, and that 20 minute segment of the walk is great. Yeah. yeah. And because in Man on Wire, although it's, it's so good, it makes you feel like you've seen yeah. Philippe Petit do it. You don't actually see him ever physically no, walk. Of so that not. part was cool. Um, so once again, yeah, he's taken a documentary and he has messed it up. Yeah. Um, Marwin <laughs> Call came out in 2010, I want to say. Yeah. And it's a story of a man named Mark Hogenkamp, who was really severely beaten, like traumatically beaten in the year 2000 outside of a bar in upstate New York. And he had been talking at the bar after a few drinks too many about um, how he likes to wear women's shoes. And so the rednecks in the bar take him outside and beat the crap out of him to the extent that um, he was in a coma. And he emerged from it with a great deal of memory loss, including not really remembering what happened during the actual beating itself. What's interesting about the truth of it, the documentary of it, is that the beating also beat the alcoholism out of him. Like he had been like a, a blackout drunk, like intentional blackout drunk, and he didn't drink ever again after it. They, in a very passing way, mention in this film, um, Steve Carell plays Mark Hogan Camp, that he doesn't drink anymore. It's just like a throwaway line. Oh, I don't drink anymore. 
And that's, again, one of many examples of how this movie takes what is so inherently interesting about this person in right. the story and just fucks it up. And I think the, <laughs> I think the real Mark Hunger wasn't just the shoes. Like, I think he was, an, he was a cross-dresser. Yeah, yeah. He had a thing for lingerie, right? Yeah. And so, so what Mark Hogenkamp did was, as a method of healing, he built this town, this World War II Belgian town in the yard outside of his mobile home, and it is one-sixth the scale of real life. And he populated it with Barbie dolls and gave them all costumes and names and backstories and assembled them in various ways. He built, you know, a church and a saloon and a hotel. And he told stories with the dolls and he photographed them and he named the town Marwin Call. And it's a combination of various people's names and Mar being him being Mark. And uh, he became, he, he is an artist and the photography is really moving and kind of dangerous and kind of alive and very exciting. And the documentary, which I would very much suggest that you watch, Mm -hmm. um, you meaning you guys out there listening, um, it's really interesting and it's really you know, yeah. true to what this guy's story is and the sadness and the healing and the trauma. It's a, it's a great story about, you know, the idea of art as therapy. Yeah. It's about, yeah, just resilience and it's a triumph for the human spirit. It really is. And, and so Zemeckis goes for that triumph for the human spirit element of mm, the story and of just like hammers the shit out of it. <sighs> so, um, it is a fictionalized version of his story, and Robert Zemeckis, being Robert Zemeckis, has to just smother everything with his visual effects wizardry. Mm. And so, in his version, the dolls come to life, of and course. and they are um, created through performance capture by these actors. So it's Steve Carell, and it's Leslie Mann is the woman who moves in across the street from him and becomes one of his prime inspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, you have Janelle Monae is in real life and in doll form the um, woman who was his physical therapist Mm -hmm. at the hospital as he was getting better and relearning how to walk and all that. Um, You have um, Merritt Weaver Mm. is a woman who works at the hobby shop where he frequents to get all the supplies and all the Mm -hmm. details he needs to make these, these places come to life. And she's got this secret kind of fascination, maybe a crush on him, and he is kind of oblivious to that. So you have all these women in his real life who inform the doll characters, and through Zemeckis's fondness for performance capture, the dolls all come to life. And he spends a lot of time with the dolls coming to life, and the scenes are really kind of the same thing over and over again. It's, it's this weird kind of icky gray area where the women are strong and and they they are the strongest ones in in the town which has now been shortened to marwin mm-hmm. the town is just called marwin eventually we couldn't be, handle that extra syllable right. if, and we have we have a story as to you know why it becomes marwin call oh. um but but for now it's just marwin the title of the film is welcome to marwin so the women are all really strong and they're resourceful and they kick ass and they're fearless and they're the ones who come to his rescue over and over and over again in these stories mm-hmm. um but there's also like an icky kind of leering element to them because they're all, you know, scantily clad and they're wearing, they're wearing high heels because he likes heels a lot. He's, mm-hmm. he's got a big shoe collection. So that manifests itself in the dolls that way. I mean, I guess the dolls are just, you know. So they're know, literally objectified is what you're saying. They literally are. <laughs> they are objects and he objectifies them. So, um, you know, there's one that is inspired by a fictitious porn star, who was played by? She might be Zemeckis's wife. Oh, I think so. She's. She, I think she was a former uh, burlesque dancer. Yes, I think and she did a documentary about burlesque. Also, is that he, he produced? Maybe. Anyway, it's it's 
tonally really jarring as far as the back and forth between the the doll life Mm -hmm. and real life. And Steve Carell, who is, yeah, everywhere these days between playing Rumsfeld and Vice and and Beautiful Boy and this. And this is yet another one of his ventures into a a very serious film. This is crying Steve Carell. Yeah, yeah, kind of. These are the categories. (laughs) So, um, yeah, he's just, he does some nice understated, vulnerable, pained work in the real life, the live action scenes in mm-hmm. here. And then it's like back to the whiz bang of the the performance capture stuff. And the back and forth is so jarring and it's so overwhelming. And I, I wish that they would just, well, A, never have made this film, but B, <laughs> stayed in the live action part of it because that's what's really interesting. And and uh, his interactions with Leslie Mann are kind of nice. I mean, she's she's got a past that she's kind of trying to outrun, and she's trying to start over in this small town. And in in this guy, she sees I don't know a purity that she's kind of interested in, but then he gets kind of clingy with her and has interest in her that she does not reciprocate, and then that gets kind of tense. So there's some more interesting stuff going on in the live action stuff. Um, I did my worst of the year list this past week and I don't rank them. I just put them all out there alphabetically, but this might be the worst movie of the year because there are movies that are, you know, worse in terms of their execution, the production values, every, everything, all the above. But this has such ambitions and such, aspirations to make you feel good Mm. and it is so heavy-handed and it just it never ever works do you feel like he was drawn to the story by the opportunities that it presented to do the technical stuff yes and then he had to sort of work backwards (laughs) to figure out oh wait wait, what what is the story here i but i have to get in all these scenes of everybody looking like dolls yeah i mean there was nothing there was nothing lacking in the documentary and and steve carell in interviews has talked about how moved he was by the documentary Mm. i i guess they felt like they could explore the town further and with more vibrancy by literally bringing it to life and it just never works. It's. I mean, I brought Nick with me to see this. Nick, oh. Nick, Nick had quite a week with me between Aquaman, <laughs> Bumblebee, and Marwin, and uh, he was really creeped out. There's a, a, a witch character played by Diane Kruger hmm. who comes in and kind of flies down with this, this very heavy accent and uh, goads him into doing things like she's his the bad angel on his shoulder. And she's really creepy. And Nick never gets scared of anything ever. And he was like, I want to go home. I like this movie. And I'm like, they're just dolls. It's not real. It's okay. And, uh, and so he didn't like it. But I don't blame him because there is like a off-putting kind of uncanny valley creepiness to the look of all of them. Yeah, just seeing the clips of like action figure Steve Carell holding a giant mug and, you know, like action figure Janelle Monet. It's like, 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 I could see you do like maybe a scene of that to sort of like put you in the mind of the, of the, of the artist and what, how he's visualizing in his own head. But to go back to that over and over again, I would, that just seems off putting. Yeah, pretty much. So, um, I'm saying a 1.7. It's really, it's really, really bad. Like I wouldn't even say it's so bad that it needs to be seen. Like just don't, Mm, just don't. don't. And if you haven't seen Marwin call, it's gotta be available for streaming. I would think somewhere. I've been trying to find it. Did you look for it? Yeah. Because I I was wanting, I was going to show it to some people before they saw this movie. And, uh, I have not been able to find it. So you think they'd figure out a way to put it out before Marwin comes out. Uh, Unless they intentionally took it off before Marwin came out. Um. So as not to look bad by comparison. 
comparison. I don't know, but it's like I think there's a there's a new like coffee table book that's coming out about the the actual okay. artist and stuff. But I, I the movie, yeah, good luck finding it because it, it is worth seeing. Well, that is too bad. Marwin Call, that is. yeah, Marwin Call. So uh, keep an eye out for that. Yeah. So my number is one point seven. It's at twenty five percent on the tomato meter, mm. and it's been lower than that. So let us go back and recap what we talked about this week. We started out with Cold War, which we all loved. Please go see it on a screen if you can. We gave it a nine. Aquaman. 5.2. Bumblebee is surprisingly really good. We give it a 7.5. And I just gave Welcome to Marwin a 1.7. So uh, next week also has some exciting Christmas week stuff. There is a Vice and On the Basis of Sex and Stan and Ollie and Destroyer. So we are heading toward the end of the year here with all the important, quote-unquote, important stuff. And we'll post that episode before Christmas since a lot of these movies open on Christmas Day. Yes, you'll be able to hear that. So, and then, uh, and then that's the end of the year. And then we'll come back and we'll do terrible January movies, and we'll do our best of and our worst of list. Indeed. All right. Well, so Matt and Ben aren't here, but they join us in wishing you all a very happy holiday, uh, a great 2019, obviously. And uh, come 2019, we will have some exciting announcements about where all this is going. I know we keep saying that, but we mean it. This time. But it's really true. Okay. Thank you guys so much. Have a great everything, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.